me to the book of Esther. Uh, last week we had an introductory uh, uh, message, the amazing providence of God, providences of God, and uh, Esther certainly is one of those uh, examples of God's uh, providence, uh, and uh, we see it in history. Uh, we see it at work in our lives each and every day if we would just recognize it. And even though the name of God is not mentioned in this book, not one time, it's about God's people and how God worked through them and for them. Now, much of history we see here in this book is pagan history. And and uh, it's it is placed in the Word of God for a definite purpose. And that purpose, I believe, is to teach us about the providence of God. Remember, we said last time, providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. As we begin to study this book, we find it begins with the law of a heathen kingdom and a difficulty, a marriage difficulty. It's a very impersonal affair that rose in this kingdom, but it had some international implications Now, for God's people, and particularly for New Testament Christians, the Bible is very clear on how to get along in marriage. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, If a woman is married to a wicked godless husband who demands her to disobey God's word. I don't believe God really ever asks them to be obedient to him. But in speaking of the married life of a spirit-filled believer, God does say that if a woman is married to a man who's willing to die for them because of his love for them, then they ought to be submissive to that man. That's uh, where uh, there is perfect love and there is perfect happiness in submission, and certainly that's what the Bible is teaching in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, we're not talking about Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We're talking about Esther chapter 1. And so uh, that's really not directly related to the incident here in Esther 1. Esther 1 comes out of a pagan culture where God's instructions were not considered and since God gave us this book, he gave it, he put it in, his, in, in God's word. And we know that all scripture is profitable, right? So God wants to teach us something even through the book of Esther. Notice, first of all, a boastful king in verses 1 through 9. We'll read verse 1 through 9. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus that this Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on uh, the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of the reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent 
majesty many days, even in hundred and four score days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple of silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver uh, upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and the royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, Some would say that Ahasuerus was really not his name, but his title. I did uh, find that uh, to be interesting. Now, I did find his name, and you find it there. I'm not even going to attempt to uh, pronounce his name, uh, his Persian name. Now, that's his Persian name, but his Hebrew name was Ahasuerus, and his Greek name was Xerxes. And probably in secular history, that's where we would find uh, most about this man was a man by the name of Xerxes. His father was Darius I. His grandfather was Cyrus the Great. And so he came from a very illustrious family. Now in these opening verses, we find three banquets mentioned. One was for the key military and political officers of the empire. That's in verses 1 through 4. Uh, one was for the men of Shushan, the king's wint- at the win- uh, king's winter palace. And that's in verses 5 through 8. And then there was one for the women of Shushan, put on by Queen Vashti, uh, there in verse 9. Now, along with these three banquets, at least six other feasts are recorded in this book. You find Esther's coronation in chapter 2, verse 18. You find Haman's celebration with the king in chapter 3, in verse 15. You find Esther's two banquets for Haman and the king in chapters 5 and 7. Jews, uh, Jewish banquets... uh, uh, the Jews had banquets when they heard the new decree in chapter 8 and verse 17, and then there was the Feast of Purim in chapter 9. Isn't it interesting and even wonderful how God can accomplish his eternal purposes through a familiar activity as people eating and drinking? Now, we have our fellowship meals once a month here uh, at the first Sunday of the month, and the eating is good, and the drinking is certainly non-alcoholic. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 says, Wherefore, there, uh, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So what was the purpose behind the banquet of the nobles and the officials? Well, even though God doesn't really tell us here, secular history would indicate that it was a political uh, dinner, perhaps like the state dinners that you'll find at the White House or other occasions on the federal and state level. But it was an opportunity for the king of Persia to impress his nobles and his military with his wealth and his power. 
kind of, you know, like a salesman would uh, take someone out to an exclusive restaurant and and break down their resistance so he can make that big sale. You know, he's going to give them some some good food, some steaks or something, you know, and say, man, isn't that great stuff? Now, how much do you want to buy? Uh, so uh, that's kind of the idea here. And the king was a proud man. He was appealing to the pride of others. Of course, ultimately, it didn't work. And it would have been well for him to learn that truth of one of the verses we read in our scripture reading, Proverbs 16 and verse 18, where it says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, people in authority need to remember that all authority comes from God and he alone is in complete control. Pharaoh had to learn that lesson in Egypt. You find that in Exodus chapter 7. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that in Babylon in Daniel chapters 3 and 4. Belshazzar learned it at his blasphemous banquet in Daniel chapter 5. Sennacherib uh, learned it at the gates of Jerusalem, Isaiah 36 and 37. Herod Agrippa I learned it as he died, being eaten by worms, Acts chapter 12. And someday, the ungodly leaders of this world and even of our land are going to realize that as well. All authority comes from God. And so we find here a very boastful king. He puts on these banquets to try to show off to his, his uh, in a political way, his wealth and power. But then we have a drunken king in verses 10 through 12. That's already been mentioned in verse 8. But in verse 10 it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. And the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now, we find here, as we look at this passage, the scripture really ignores the military, the political implications, because really the writer's purpose is to explain how Esther became the queen. And it was at the conclusion of one of the, the seventh, seven-day banquet of the king, King Ahasuerus, that in the high spirits of wine, he ordered his queen to display her beauty to the assembled guest. But she refused to obey. Hence our title this morning, The Wife Who Refused to Obey. Okay. Some of you thought we were going in a different direction, but hang on. Her response, of course, was triple offense. Notice that there she was challenging the authority of man. She was a wife disobeying the orders of her husband. She was subject defying the command of the king. Now, again, you look at verse 12. It says, but the queen Vashti refused to come to the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth and his anger burned in him. You know, as we study the book of Esther, we find that this mighty king could control everything but himself. His advisors easily influenced him. 
He made impetuous decisions that he later regretted. And when he didn't get his own way, he became angry. Because of his pride, he was the master of a mighty empire, but he was not the master of himself. Again, in Proverbs, if we would read a little farther in Proverbs 16, it says in verse 32, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. King Ahasuerus would build a great citadel at Shushan, but he could build his, he could not build his own character. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. He could not control his temper nor his thirst. Now, I think this is probably a good place to stop and consider alcohol and anger. These two powerful forces that have brought more destruction even to our own society today than the statistics would reveal. Now, in verse 8, it says there, the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. Now, we can appreciate the king's wisdom that not forcing his guests to drink, but we could hardly compliment him on his bad example he set by his own drinking habits. Now, believe it or not, this has become a real issue today, even in Baptist circles, to drink or not to drink. And there are some who would say, well, it's not, it's okay to, to have a little sip of, of wine or something, maybe a, a beer, maybe while you're watching your ball game or something, or, uh, you know, a little bit of wine while you uh, have your, your dinner. And there are those who say, well, the Bible doesn't command total abstinence, abstinence. But if you're careful, and I mean if you really carefully read and study your Bible, the principles against the use of alcohol as a beverage are there. And I believe it's emphasized. Israel didn't drink strong drink during the wilderness pilgrimage in Deuteronomy chapter 29. The priests were instructed not to drink wine or strong drink while serving in the tabernacle in Leviticus chapter 10. The Nazarites were forbidden not only to drink wine, but even to eat the skin or seeds of the grape in Leviticus chapter 6. And some would say, yeah, but that's Old Testament, and that certainly doesn't apply to us today. Besides that, didn't Jesus turn the water into wine? Careful. Be careful. I believe, again, a careful study of God's word will reveal that there are different uses of that word wine in the Bible. And I submit to you that wine Jesus made was really grape juice. And a careful study will reveal that. Now, people don't want to be careful in studying the Bible, though. They want to do what they want to do and what they feel like doing. Uh, So they take the words and the verses out of context and they give them their own convenient meaning and they justify their social drinking You know, most of the advertisements that uh, you find for alcoholic beverages today promote the sale of these uh, drinks, and they depict people that are fashionable and gracious, and they're having the the best time of their life. They're just, it's fun-filled settings, and it gives the subtle impression that a couple of beers or a glass of wine is associated with success and great fun. Do you know pastors and social workers and physicians and even 
members of uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous, they would paint a different picture. They've seen firsthand the wrecked marriages, the ruined bodies and the minds, the abused families and shattered careers that often accompany what people call social drinking. I could spend this morning story after story after story of my own experience as an ambulance driver. I won't even get started there. I'll be here all day. Or as a law enforcement chaplain of the times when I've seen people and their lives ruined because of alcohol. Someone has said that alcohol has no more place in the human body than sand has in a gas tank of an automobile. Alcohol is a narcotic. It's not a food. It destroys. It does not nourish. The Bible warns against drunkenness, and we could look at many passages in the Bible where we find that warning, but people say, oh, I don't get drunk. I just have a beer while watching the ball game or a glass of wine with my dinner. There's a Japanese proverb that warns, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. More importantly, though, the Bible gives us the warning of a mother of a king. I believe in Proverbs 31, it was King Lemuel's mother that taught him, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor the prince's strong drink. And so the best way to avoid drunkenness is not to drink at all. Now, what about that other thing called anger? The anger of King Ahasuerus expressed toward his lovely queen was ignorant, it was childish, it was completely uncalled for. Had the king been sober, he would never have asked his wife to display her beauties before his drunken leaders. But his pride got the best of him, for he couldn't command his own wife. How could he ever command the Persian armies? And since Vashti had embarrassed the king before his own leaders, the king had to do something to save both his ego and his reputation. Listen, Vashti was right and Ahasuerus was wrong. And his anger was only further proof that he was wrong. Anger has a way of blinding the eyes and deadening the hearts to that which is good and noble. King Ahasuerus became a prisoner of pride. And to be sure, there's a holy anger against sin that ought to burn in the heart of every godly person. As it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, Let love be without simulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Even our Lord manifested anger at sin in Mark chapter 3, but we must be careful that our anger at sin doesn't become sinful anger. Ephesians 4, 20 says, uh, 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Sometimes what we call righteous indignation is only unrighteous temper masquerading in religious garments. Jesus equated anger with murder in Matthew 5, and Paul warns us that anger can hinder our prayer life in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Pride feeds anger. And as it grows, anger reinforces pride. As we said in our Sunday school lesson this morning, anger can become bitterness and resentfulness. 
Proverbs 14, 17 says, He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hatred. That verse is a perfect illustration of King Ahasuerus. Indeed, instead of being angry at Vashti, the king should have been angry at himself for acting so foolishly. Now that brings us to the third point here, and that is a vindictive king, beginning in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next came unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Mersina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which was sat at the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of King Hazareris by the chamberlains. And Mimukin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the kings only, but also to all the princes and all the people that are in all provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say that this day unto all the king's princes, which they have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. And if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king Hazareris, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she." And when the king, uh, when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. When the ego is pierced, it releases a powerful poison that makes people do all sorts of things they would never do if they were humble and submitted before God. Had Ahasuerus sobered up and thought the matter through, he would have never disposed his wife. After all, he, uh, she showed more character than he did. It's not just drunkenness that causes a person to have this problem. Whenever our pride, our thinking, we know more than someone else, or our place in life in relationship to others, or we make some foolish decisions. We speak out of turn. And we do not accomplish God's purpose in our lives. The Persian king had seven counselors who advised him in the matters of state and had the right to approach him on his throne. They also knew how to flatter the king so they could secure their positions. They could get from him what they wanted. The phrase here, uh, I believe in verse uh, uh, 13 there, uh, about how they knew the times. They understood the times. It suggests that they were astrologers, perhaps. They consulted the stars. Uh, They used other forms of divination. And so the king is concerned about the repercussions of Vashti's disobedience, and he asked for advice. 
Of course, his ungodly advisors blew this situation out of proportion. They said that the consequences would be disastrous. The women in the empire would hold the men in contempt, and the general rebellion of wives against husbands would follow. And these counselors were playing it smart, so to speak. They exaggerated the problem, they inflated their own importance, and they made the king dependent upon them. Apparently, a fellow by the name of Mamukin, who probably had the same problems as his own wife, with his own wife, came up with a solution. He reminds me of one husband who came home from work one day and boast, or came to work, excuse me, he came to work one day and he boasted, last night my wife was on her knees to me. One of the fellows knew the situation. He was skeptical and he asked, well, what were the circumstances and what exactly did she say to you? Well, then he was a little embarrassed, but he admitted, well, she was down on her knees looking under the bed and said, you come out of there, you coward. I think that was Melmukin. Mamukin, and uh, we find here, and he has the solution in verse 19. And so how could he and his fellow advisors be so callous to, in their treatment of Vashti, so foolish in their evaluation of the women of the empire? They were encouraging every husband to act just like King Ahasuerus and manage the home on the basis of executive command. Now that's quite a contrast to Paul's counsel to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, is it not? Again, I, I want to remind you that these men, the king and his advisors, were not living and acting according to biblical principles. And we dare not take our counsel, or even our, the world's counsel, on our treatment on how, or how to treat one another today. Our counsel must come from God's word. And as I've already noted, Ephesians chapter 5 has a great deal to say about that. But then we come to a foolish king. King Ahasuerus didn't immediately replace Vashti. And we find here in verse 21, it says, And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Melmukin, for he sent letters unto all the king's provinces, into all the province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Most likely this took place after he had gone off to invade Greece, where he met with a humiliating defeat. He thought he could satisfy his sensual appetite by searching for a new queen. Women in the empire were not only uh, subservient to the men, but they were sex objects to give them pleasure. And so the more you know about King Ahasuerus, the more you detest him and really understand that he's not someone to be like. He's not a good shining example for us. And listen, we are fools if we're going to follow the example of the world that we live in. Men, if we treat our wives as many men treat their wives in our world today, we would be fools. And ladies, if you would treat your husbands as many women in this world do today, you also would be a fool. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry. You only go around once in life, so live it up with all the gusto you can. God says, whatsoever, or whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do to the, all to the glory of God. 
The world says if your wife doesn't do what you want her to do, then just get a divorce. God says he hates divorce. And husbands, you are to love your wife. It's a command. The world says there's nothing wrong with just living together. Marriage isn't necessary. That's what the world will say. God says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The world says, you don't want that baby? Get an abortion. God says, lo, children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Again, the world will give you bad advice concerning most areas of life, and so it's best to take your instruction from God's Word. You know, sometimes we have to make hard decisions. We're put into situations beyond our control, yet we're faced with a choice. Pressure bears as as we weigh the options. Do what's right, or do we do what's easiest, or do we do what's safe? Or we do what everybody else expects us to do. Queen Vashti found herself in that situation. Esther would find herself later on with even greater pressure to bear. Now the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Vashti. And she's often portrayed in one of two ways. She's either portrayed as a rebellious wife or as a woman of strong conviction for her refusal to obey the king's command. The fact is the writer doesn't explain her motive. And we can't say for certainty that Vashti's reasons were what they were, but we do see that her decision had long-term consequences. And you and I make decisions every day. Some are more important than others. You know, caffeinated or decaf. I mean, that's not a really big issue unless you have an issue with that, you know. But we make decisions every day. Some of them have some strong implications for the future, don't they? What do our choices say about us? Psalm 119.9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We're very familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I think we need to learn verse 7, too, which says, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. Proverbs 19 and verse 20 says, Hear counsel. And receive instruction, that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end. Now just be sure you're getting your counsel from a reliable source. Are you getting your counsel from the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or are you getting your counsel from God's word? You know, we don't always see the consequences of our decisions ahead of time. And certainly Vashti, who was not a worshiper of God did not see the far-reaching consequences of her choice, but as a child of God, you and I, we have a blessed advantage in making decisions. 
Isaiah 41 and verse 10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Perhaps you're here this morning and like the characters of this chapter, you're living according to the world's principles. You have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not saved. And so you're doing whatever the world does. Perhaps you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And I would invite you to put your faith in Him today. But certainly, as believers, those of us who know the Lord, we ought to be faithfully following His Word and getting our counsel from Him. Let's pray.